I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. You know, what, what we want and what we want to convey is expertise and authority. Choosing your audience is often the first piece of the puzzle when you set out to write. Who do you want picking up your next novel or reading your next screenplay? While the process might be difficult enough, figuring out how to speak to them is a different challenge altogether. For many news publications, the net is cast wide, the audience is intentionally broad and varied, but for Worth magazine, there's a very specific type of person its writers are trying to reach. Worth aims to inspire high net worth families and individuals to live better and to make an impact on the world, covering areas like business, finance, lifestyle and health. But when you're talking to people whose entrepreneurial thinking and brilliant minds have placed them at the top of their game, what can you say to them that's new, that spins the cogs of their minds, that changes the way they live their lives? When the rest of the world is going to them for advice, how do you convince them to listen to you? Richard Bradley is editor-at-large at Worth Media, responsible for its editorial print, digital, broadcast and radio content. And he's our guest today. Chapter 1. Knowledge is power. Audiences these days are more informed than they've ever been. They know how things operate. They know what really goes on behind the scenes. So when TV shows or books take liberties with the facts, deviate too far from reality, they get pulled up. People don't like it. It's why many writers seek expert advice. Whether you're penning a medical drama, a detective novel, or writing about sex, nothing quite beats experience and hands-on practical knowledge. So when the very people your magazine is writing for already have an extreme wealth of experience and knowledge, you're kept under a much more watchful eye. You have to be damn sure you know what you're talking about. And how do you do this? Well, Worth puts the pen in the hands of the experts themselves. What we're really looking for is a voice. And the voice needs to be uh, informed, expert, authoritative, confident, knowing. We're writing for a sophisticated audience. And so we want a kind of conformity across the the board in terms of style in the sense that our writers have to convey this sense of being expert and which which in fact means that they have to be an expert and so there's a confidence that you want to convey that comes from that because as i said we are writing for a sophisticated and accomplished group of people and they need to feel that the folks who are writing for them uh, although they may not be as wealthy as, as the audience of the magazine, that they are as expert in the subject about which they're writing. So clearly you would expect the writers to, to know the magazine and to have some kind of sense as to what the readership was, what the demographic was, and, and what, they, what kind of interests they had. You would. Uh, I would. And I would think that goes without saying. Uh, but surprisingly, it often does not happen. Um, and I think that sometimes that's because people create a pitch and then they sort of send it out en masse. They might uh, change a name on the email or something, but they, they think it's uh, uh, more time efficient or uh, something to do it that way. Whereas I've uh, typically found that, that one well-crafted pitch to one particular place can be more effective than a pitch that's somewhat generically written and sent to a number of different places. Yes, I talk to a lot of writers, uh, and I know this isn't um, for magazine writing, but you would... You wouldn't expect to send something to um, a broadcaster like HBO that you would also send to the BBC. You would want to tweak it so that it fitted either the style of HBO or the style of BBC. Um, Presumably, it's the same 
for a magazine, if I'm pitching to the editor of Worth magazine, I'm presumably not sending in the same pitch as if I were pitching to somebody either at the New Yorker or the Guardian or Forbes or Huffington Post. You know, I would want to tweak it for that particular style. That's what you're expecting to see, right? Somebody that understands you, yeah. the magazine and your readership. Very much so. And I think you'd also like to see some evidence that the person has read the magazine. Um, I, I think it's nice to see somebody who references uh, other articles that we've published that might be uh, thematically similar or, or have some kind of connection to what the, the writer is pitching. And essentially, the, the reason for this is not just because it shows that the person is thinking about what's right for worth. It's because from a very practical level, editors can be bombarded with people wanting their attention. And one of the things that I think makes a pitch stickier, for lack of a better term, is if you look at it and you say, okay, here's someone who's addressing me as an individual. Here's someone who's clearly thought about worth uh, and is engaging with our content. There's some intelligence here and there's some footwork. So, okay, I'm more likely to, to read that and take it seriously. Almost as if the pitch itself is part of the job. I find that writers don't often appreciate that. It's not just the article or the script. In your case, it's the initial approach and everything through then to the writing of the article, any editing that needs to get done afterwards, and then the sign-off. It's an end-to-end -end process, right? Well, it's the power of the first impression. And if the, if the first impression that you make is sort of slapdash or rushed or a little bit lazy, then why should I take a leap of faith that the rest of the process is going to be any different? Um, and uh, sadly, it, it's a pretty common thing where you have somebody who seems to, to sort of be suggesting implicitly through the hastiness of the pitch, could you just assign it to me? I don't really want to put this, this much work into it without knowing. And it, it sends a strange signal. The magazine clearly has a wealthy um, audience. How is the magazine industry doing, not just at the moment, but I guess in these very, very challenging times? Well, as you say, it's a challenging time. I, I'd have to be honest and say, I don't think the magazine industry is doing very well. Um, it's an industry that by and large doesn't have deep reserves of, of cash. It depends on you know, advertising and subscriptions. Uh, subscriptions are always a challenge. Uh, certainly for print magazines, subscriptions are often not even a moneymaker but they're used to drive advertising. Digital subscriptions are, are great, but they're hard for uh, folks to attract. And I read today that uh, the Atlantic uh, media company, which was uh, significantly bought recently by Learning Powell Jobs, who's the widow of Stephen Jobs, and is worth a reported $26 billion, is laying off something like 68 people. Mm. And what's funny about this I mean, really, there's nothing really funny, ha-ha funny about it, but what's curious about it and sort of ironic is that the, the, the magazine industry in the past five years or so, five to ten years, has done two things that I think the industry has hoped would save it. One is to pivot, which is a term that I find irritating, but we're all using now, to live events as the primary source of, of their revenue. Uh, content uh, in print and digital can be seen as a loss leader for the fact that uh, people will go to live events and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a ticket, often because their company is paying for it. And the second thing that the industry has done in recent years is to turn to billionaires for help. So the funny, not in a ha-ha thing here, is that both of those 
options have suddenly turned very sour. You know, the live events business is essentially non-existent right now because of the virus. And I think the uh, Atlantic experience is showing that uh, although it's nice to have deep pocketed investors and owners, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to kind of support you through the rough times. You know, at the end of the day, uh, there are very few of those wealthy people who don't want to make money on their investments. And if uh, at an organization such as the Atlantic, where you have several hundred people working, um, those expenses are, are really quite significant. Even an investor who cares passionately about journalism may find him or herself willing to say, okay, well, we're going to lay some people off now. So hey. it's, it's a challenging time. Chapter two, planning your pivot. If this pandemic has shown us anything, it's that normal isn't guaranteed. That at any moment the rug can be pulled out from under our feet, the best laid plans and all that. For magazines, that means funding models are drying up. As writers, we're often acting on a wing and a prayer, so when turmoil hits, panic can set in. So perhaps you should plan your pivot, way before you ever need to enact it. We're a versatile bunch. Good writers will always have a career. If you're well prepared, I promise you can weather any storm. I'm not saying any of us could have seen this coming, mind you. For worth, the outbreak of coronavirus has led to a shift for the magazine. The voice remains the same, but there's been a move towards the publishing of a certain type of article. What we're seeing now, I think, is a surge in what's essentially service journalism. Things to do during a pandemic. What kind of insurance you need, uh, where you should be with your trust in the state situation, um, uh, what should you do with your investments, what about uh, concierge medicine. So I think there is this sense that um, the kind of typical feature writing is not as urgent at the moment, although you can make a counter argument that at some point people are going to be desperate to read anything that's not about coronavirus, but we're not there yet. At the moment, I think people are looking for things to help them navigate through. And if you're a high net worth person, you have some of the same concerns that we all do, and also some very specific concerns. So in some ways, it's reminiscent to me of, of many of the types of articles that Worth was publishing back in 2008 and 2009, when there's a different kind of crisis, but one that also had real implications for, for businesses, for entrepreneurship, for wealth management. Uh, and people were desperate for information that was applicable to, the, to a crisis environment. So you're, uh, we're seeing the articles we're publishing now that focus on what you can do to help yourself get through this and position yourself for the aftermath are doing very well. I, I think in, also, if I may, in part, that's, that's a little bit of a function of the fact that we still in some ways know so little about the virus. And what we do know seems to change with some regularity, or at least become more nuanced. And so given that that state of affairs is in such flux, people want, uh, I think, actionable information about the other parts of their life. Mm, that's fascinating. And yes, it does feel very reminiscent. I mean, I know it's a different type of problem, but I am finding myself thinking back to 2008, nine, and I wonder whether when we do start to come out of this, how quickly certain things come back to normal, whatever normal looks like, and how 
some things actually might never come back. Um, I was reading today an online retail expert here in the UK on our equivalent or was on our equivalent of, um, of Shark Tank, um, a show called Dragon's Den, has said that, you know, he thinks that retail, you know, may never recover from this in, in the traditional sense of there being footfall into shops um, and the amount of stuff that is now being done online um, you know, versus people actually going into a shop. He says he thinks that the high street um, or main street as it exists today may look radically different in the future, which then has implications for all kind of ancillary services and the way that we use real estate, you know, the way that we travel the world, et cetera, et cetera, which presumably are issues that are very near and dear to the heart of your readership. Very much so. Um, I, listen, I think it's a, it's a fair question. To me, it's all sort of pre and post vaccine, this debate. Uh, what happens to that kind of prediction once there's a vaccine? How how long term will people's behavior be changed, uh, sort of in a systematic way, as opposed to well, we had this one virus, right? But now we've we've got a vaccine for that. We don't really have to change the way we do things, as opposed to there may be more. There probably will be more. We need to institutionalize this this change that we're living through now. Uh, in terms of of Worth's readers and writers. I think it's a little bit a two-stage process. One is what can you do now? What can you do now to sort of create some sense of order in your life, uh, with your family, with your business, with your finances in a time of crisis? And two is what's the middle, medium to long-term prospect look like? And I, 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 I do think this question of kind of everything's going to change versus well, in fact, that's, some things may revert back it is the crux of the debate, and nobody really knows. I, I think people will tell you, and there, there may well be some long-term permanent changes. I think one is that uh, Zoom calls are going to be a mainstay of communication when before they were you know, a more isolated tool. There are also implications for, I mean, well, for every industry, let's be, let's be fair. If I think about, you know, writers writing fiction, you know, film, television, theater, that those industries are dealing with all of the same problems. How do you, how do you come out of this safely? How do you get back to some um, sense of, um, of normality and the way that we write stories and the way that we tell stories may change in the future. I think there will always be stories and stories will find a way to be told. I think the most successful writers will be those that understand the changing nature of what people are, you know, what people want to see, what they want to um, read. Have you, have you found yourself relying more on trusted writers over the last few months than, than perhaps um, giving other writers a chance? Is there a flight to what you know and what you trust right now? A flight to quality. Yeah. There is, I, I think, very much so. Uh, and I suspect uh, sort of uh, writers who have a bit of a name. But of course, you know, with Worth, we've always tried to do that to some degree because, again, if you have an audience that is uh, uh, pretty generally broadly accomplished, it helps them to have a kind of a confidence in, in what you're trying to present if they feel that the writer is somebody they know or have read before or recognize. And I do think that there's an argument where, in particular in finance, you have some writers who have been writing about the, these issues for years, decades, whose insights you kind of welcome now. It, it is hard, though, because digitally speaking, that there's, it's, there's still, uh, still very hard to establish a name for yourself as a writer. 
And often we see that the people who are able to do that have made a name for themselves in a different field, for example, in wealth management, which is relevant for us, and then are writing about it, as opposed to people who started their careers as writers and are then writing about wealth management. So I often find that kind of having that, that added layer of expertise in another career is something that's very helpful. Chapter three, trust in expertise. Your life experiences will influence your writing. It's impossible to get away from, and you wouldn't want to anyway. Using what you've been through, the drama, the happiness, the unhappiness, it allows you to empathise with the characters you create and to build up a realistic world for them to live in. Before I made the full-time move into writing and broadcasting and all things creative, I had a 20-year career in financial services and crisis management. What I never expected on the other side was how much of an influence my corporate background would have on my writing and my work. And yet there are too many people who have taken a leap of faith and tried to make writing a full-time gig that they shy away from or are embarrassed by their past careers. Why? I say use every string on your bow. No matter how far removed one discipline seems from another, experience is always a valuable asset to capitalize on. I completely agree with that. Uh, you're bringing something else to bear. And in fact, if you can not only bring that to bear, but if, if it's a niche that you can work so much the better. You know, what, what we want... And what we want to convey is expertise and authority. And there's really two ways to get that. One is by reporting, really extensive reporting. And the other is by having been an expert or being an expert in a particular field, such as, say, medicine. Now, reporting is expensive and hard to fund and often hard to monetize. So I think there's been this kind of general shift towards, okay, well, if we're reporting on medicine and science, you know, maybe we should just have a doctor do it. Uh, maybe we should just have a doctor writing a column rather than assigning a young reporter on a medical beat to try to report out a story that, that will take some time and cost some money. And I'm not entirely comfortable with that shift. Uh, I still like people who are familiar with kind of the norms and mores of journalism and, and what's involved there. But there's a, there's a healthy balance. And sometimes it's kind of nice to have a, uh, a doctor or whomever be the source of, of information that you want. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, if I think about the likes of, you know, particularly now when talking about the virus and what is going on, um, we have here in the UK, there is a daily briefing by the government who is typically accompanied by two um, scientific advisors or medical officers or clinicians or nurses or whatever it is. And it's almost like a daily science lesson. It's absolutely fascinating. You know, access mm -hmm. to that level of knowledge um, and the way they answer questions, they're, they're not afraid to say, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I'm only going to mm -hmm. use facts to back up my answers. I'm not, I'm not interested in conjecture. I'm not interested in hypothesizing. We'll tell you what we know and we'll tell you what the advice is. And, you know, there's this phrase here, we'll be guided by the science. It's been absolutely fascinating to sit through. And I will miss that when it, when it, will, when it goes away. But there is just something utterly credible about somebody who knows what they're talking about doing so in an articulate manner. It's very, very refreshing. It is. And I think, listen, you see that, uh, of course, some of the same things uh, here with Tony Fauci has mm. become kind of a national hero, yeah. although controversial in some quarters, but not in most quarters. Uh, and I think you see it in, in terms of the punditry you see on the news networks. You know, you have pundits who 
are sort of professional pundits. And then there are some who are clearly steeped in the field that they're talking about. And the, that sense of, uh, for me, it's, it's kind of excitement and fascination when you're listening to someone who's really smart, really informed, has had a, you know, an accomplished career in a particular field and knows what she or he is talking about. That, I, I love that. Uh, as you say, with the scientists, it's, it's that level of knowledge and intelligence is, is quite cool to see and watch. Uh, and you feel like you're really getting some benefit from that. That's the, the challenge is to keep it at that level and, and avoid the, the sort of more casual punditry. That is you know, a fairly common thing on the news networks here, simply because it's inexpensive and they fill up time. Yeah, and words are cheap, right? And everybody's got an opinion these days. Yeah, very much so. And I think uh, you see this particularly on MSNBC and CNN on, on weekends and in the afternoons. Uh, you look at some of the people who are put on to talk about politics and current affairs and think, well, who are these people? I mean, they, they look good on TV, but this person's 25 years old. Nothing against 25-year-olds, but it's the same challenge of where do you find expertise that we have? Um, how do you convey it? Uh, how do you trust it? Uh, what's going to work? And I still think there's a couple things. One is a great reporter, and the other is a, a genuine expert. So those are the things that, that we look for at Worth, and it's not easy. It's not easy, but that's what makes, you know, that's what makes it fun. When you find something like that, it's, it's really satisfying. It's at a time like this when I find myself, if I think about my own media diet and the content that I consume, I, f I found myself recently reaching for much longer form commentary and narrative about these issues, reading articles that, you know, normally, again, whatever normal is, but normally that you would flick through, you know, pretty quickly and we have this trend now, don't we, on things like medium.com where it'll tell you how long a read this is. So it'll say a two-minute read, and you go, okay, that's mm -hmm. two minutes of my time. I have found myself personally reaching for much longer form content, content that is really diving into the issues and helping you understand the ramifications of those. So if we just think about your readership at the moment, one, they're going to be interested personally in what's happening in the world around them um, and any developments on you know, vaccines and when we can all be safe again. Then they'll be starting to think about the medium to long term nature of their own business and whether we're going to be in recession and what that might look like and what the opportunities will be. You can't do that in a two minute soundbite. Right. You've got to really invest uh, right. the, the, the time. That's right. And I think, uh, listen, you're also seeing the power of, of trusted brands at the moment, because if I'm going to be seeking out information about the virus, reporting around the politics of the virus, you know, things about the White House and, and, and here in this country, our, our uh, health establishment. I'm going to be looking at, at places that I, that I feel are pretty trustworthy, the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, and so on. Digital brands have not gotten to that level yet. It doesn't mean that they aren't making some important contributions, but if you want information about your health, and you're looking online, where are you going to turn? And when I say digital brands, I'm really thinking of sort of more digital only, relatively recent startups. Obviously, all media brands are in some ways digital brands now. But I, I do think that it's an opportunity for some media companies to really elevate themselves by doing some, some great work. Uh, there's plenty of material to go around, that's for sure. For us, we're in a good position because we are a good brand 
uh, for our audience. We do have a, a record of being trusted when it comes to giving useful, well-reported and expert advice on things like wealth management, other issues that are relevant to a high net worth audience. Um, that's a very specific space. Um, it's not an easy one in which to write and report again, because uh, the issues are, are ones that are not relevant to, to most of our lives, to many people's lives, if you're not in that world. And also because it's a world where people can be pretty private, but we have been around long enough and we have a record, a track record uh, of being reliable. And so it's a good moment for us in that sense. Just one final question, Richard, if I may. Um, we talked earlier about the first impression that a writer gives to you, the editor, when they when they make a pitch. Is there anything that you can perhaps shed any light on? Things that you observe in writers that if you if we could just tell writers to stop doing certain things, it would really help. Is there anything that you experience in your interaction with writers throughout the whole process of of commissioning an article to getting it out there that some writers have a tendency to do stuff that lets them down? Yes. Um, this tendency that I mentioned earlier, which is to say, I don't really want to do this pitch. Um, I want this pitch to be essentially the length of a text or a tweet, because that's the way I communicate in other areas of my life. It's really not convincing. I mean, uh, listen, most of the time, commissioning an article is, is an act of, uh, is a leap of faith, right? Sometimes you have, you're pitched by really long-term veteran journalists, but that's not typically true. Uh, long-term veteran journalists are typically the people who get called or emailed rather than the people who pitch. And so if you're not in that position, so the last thing that you want to do is suggest that you're not really committed to this or you don't have the time to actually write a real pitch, that, that you want to take uh, the norms of, of digital communication elsewhere and write a pitch that's consistent with that. Well, of course, I'm not going to take a leap of faith because uh, I have a pitch of 140 characters. No, nobody, it's, a, it's, the odds are high, it's going to be a waste of time and money. Uh, so put the effort into it. It'll pay off. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Richard Bradley for joining me on the podcast. And so to recap, what have we learned? If you're not an expert within the field you're writing about, then make yourself one. Or at least learn enough from other experts so you can be confident in what you're saying. That confidence will help the reader to buy into your story, to believe and trust the world you've built for them. The pitch is just as important as the script or the novel or the manuscript or the article. If you've created a masterpiece, don't ruin its chances by sending an en masse generic email to anyone who might read it. Tailor your pitch. Think about who you're sending it to. What do they want to hear? Spend the time and you'll reap the rewards. Have a plan of what you're going to do next or how you might respond if your circumstances suddenly change. This pandemic has been a shock to us all, but if nothing else, it's highlighted the importance of being prepared for all eventualities. And finally, if you have a past career, then embrace it. Figure out what you can learn from that experience and how it might influence your writing, no matter how unrelated those two things might seem. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Coming up next week, we'll be in conversation with Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster. 
No, not a sentence I thought I'd ever say either. Good storytelling is when you rearrange the, the outward elements so as to reveal the inner meaning even more clearly. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.